Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a great pleasure this morning in our next edition of our podcast for me to introduce you to Julie Werniak. Julie is in Phoenix, Arizona. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Greg. Uh, look, Julie's become a really special friend of mine um, since we met back in April 2018 whilst I was on my Churchill Fellowship. Um, Julie's so special, she even drove about 600 kilometres last November to come and have dinner with me in San Diego. Um, <laughs> but you travelled much further, Greg. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't there. I was there for a conference. You were good enough <laughs> right. to come and see me. I <laughs> right. always remember that. Um, look, before going into the interview, Julie, I thought I'd just um, let our listeners know um, about your biography, which is quite outstanding um, with what you've done both during um, and since your um, policing career has, um, has finished up. Uh, you're a 20-year veteran of the Tempe Police Department. Uh, you're awarded the Police Cross by the Temporary Police Department, which I believe is the highest honoured award that you can be awarded by the Tempe Police Department. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, as well as being awarded the Medal of Valour by the International Association of Women in Law Enforcement. And both of those awards... Uh, were awarded to you in relation to a critical incident you were involved in, which um, we're about to talk about. You've right. had multiple life-saving awards. You're a, um, awarded as Police Officer of the Year, the Defensive Tactics Instructor of the Year. Uh, you're the founder of our team of self-defence, which we will go into a little bit later, Julie. Um you have a Bachelor of Science degree in Sport Management and an Associate degree in Law Enforcement and Technology. You're a subject matter expert in physical fitness, a certified crew member and self-defence instructor for the Federal Air Marshals and an adjunct faculty member for Rio Salado College. You're also a mixed martial arts conditioning specialist through the National Academy of Sports Medicine you're passionate about teaching and you currently hold certifications in the following areas. Defensive tactics, force on force, impact weapons, de-escalation, firearms, confrontational simulations and hostage negotiations. In addition, um, you've practised and taught martial arts for over, over 30 years and I believe you're a black belt in a couple of disciplines, is that right? That's correct. Uh, in Taekwondo and American Karate, uh, and you're a two-time member of the United States National Taekwondo Team, um, and you're also um, excited delirium and agitated chaotic events instructor through the, the Institute for the Prevention in, in Custody Deaths and a certified de-escalation instructor um, for Science Institute. Is there anything I've missed out on, Julie? That is very impressive, Julie. And um, as I said to you before, it wasn't until I actually read your uh, website um, the other day that I actually realised how qualified and how passionate you are. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And look, thanks again for taking the time to join us. Um, it's a great privilege to talk to you whenever I do. I, as I said, back in April 2018, I had an opportunity to meet you and have a, a coffee with you for a couple of hours. Um, it had been recommended for me to catch up and talk to you in relation to um, an incident that occurred um, or that you're involved in on the 3rd of March 
2015. Um, before we go into that, I just wanted to um, let the listeners know, Julie, that some of the content of the conversation that we have um, may be triggering for some of their emotions and that the people that are listening need to be really aware of their self-care. Um, and if they do need to, to seek help, they can contact Beyond Blue or Lifeline, uh, who are readily available here to provide them with assistance. So, look, it's, um, I know it's something that happened now over, over five years ago, but I'm just wondering if you could give the listeners a bit of an indication on what you faced on that day back in 2015. Absolutely, Greg. And, you know, first of all, I'm honoured and excited to chat with you today. And I, I just wanted to start by saying that though I'm going to be sharing the story of a critical incident that I was involved in, I fully recognize that everybody listening has a story of their own. And it's my hope that, you know, if anybody's struggling that's listening, that um, there may be something here that they find helpful. Um, so back in March of uh, 2015, I was sent on an unknown trouble call with another officer, um, the comments stated that the caller uh, left a number of messages for her sister asking for help and for her to come get her. Um, the sister subsequently sent her own boyfriend over to the apartment where the victim lived. Um, as he approached, he heard talking, and when he knocked on the door, he heard what he believed was a scream, and then he wasn't getting a response, uh, so he contacted us. Uh, I was the first unseen, and the caller said there was no history of domestic violence and that actually the suspect in this case uh, was a really nice guy. Uh, we know that we knocked and announced over 17 times, and we spoke with neighbors together intel, and nobody saw or heard anything out of the ordinary. My friend Latasha Hampton went to the back of the unit and... Um, soon summoned me back there and said that she could hear reggae music turning on and off. Um, one thing you should know, Greg, is that this complex is in the flight path of the airport, so it has triple pane uh, soundproof glass uh, throughout. Mm -hmm. And as, as we stood there, Latasha said, wait, do you hear that? And I said, no, what? And she said, I hear him unraveling duct tape. So not only was she able to hear this through soundproof glass, but she was able to identify what the noise was. Um, so I made my way back toward the front and requested additional units. And um, I started working on trying to pry open the steel security gate that protected the inside wooden door. Um, I was acutely aware of the fact that my heart rate and my respirations and my sweating was starting to increase and I started consciously trying to slow everything down and I was working on my combat breathing. I also identified um, my cover in the event that I would have to make a retreat, a tactical retreat if he were to come blasting out or shooting through the door. Um, when other officers arrived, um, Latasha radioed and said that she could hear the victim screaming for help. We ended up forcing entry and um, I was the first through the hole we had created in the door. You should know that it was bright afternoon in Arizona, which I know, Greg, you know what that looks like. And <laughs> yep. uh, so I was going from complete sunlight to almost total darkness and that he had all the lights uh, turned off and all the window shades drawn. 
as I crouched through the hole in the door, I could see across to the other side of the apartment, and there was just enough light coming through the window shades um, for me to see the officers kicking that security glass trying to get through, and enough light to um, create a backdrop for the silhouetted scene that was unfolding in front of me, and that was the suspect standing over the victim. Um, he reached high overhead and swung his arm down as his as if he was striking her um, two times. Um, and I, I noticed subconsciously that I didn't hear any contact. He swiftly looked in my direction and, and took off running to the right. I advised that he was running and he had gone to the right and the sergeant asked where he was now. So I'm in an entryway waiting for them to get in behind me. The entryway is very small, and as you go forward, it opens to the right into a kitchen, and then beyond that, it opens to a family room, which is where he was. And um, so I'm holding on the corner, expecting a long threat, and as the sergeant comes through the door, he says, where is he now? I put up my left hand and said, I think he went to a back room, and I take one more step as I'm slicing the pie around that corner. It turns out that the suspect had... Um, actually jumped the bypass from the family room into the kitchen unbeknownst to us he was now standing on the corner waiting with a large hunting knife and as I took that step he leaped out with the knife overhead and you know of course my first thought was oh crap um, <laughs> you know not because I was scared but because I knew I couldn't get out of the way yep. um, and you know how things rush through your brain so quickly I thought he killed her he's trying to kill me and that's a really odd angle the knife's coming at um, so Tempe does a great job of teaching our officers that if you see or perceive a threat, you should be moving or moving to cover. I started stepping to my right and canting my body. As I extended my right arm, um, my muzzle collided with his body. And when I pulled the trigger the first time, the knife penetrated my neck uh, just above my left clavicle. Um, between my first and second round, I sensed an invisible wave of energy, which picked me up and launched me backwards. Um, in the process of crashing to the uh, tile floor, I struck my head um, and suffered a concussion and somehow injured my shoulder. And from there, thankfully, I didn't stand up because there's no doubt I may have been shot by my own guys. But instead, I sprung to my hands and feet. I ran out the door, the hole that we had created in the door, and I made my way to that cover I had identified. And from there, uh, I waited uh, for fire. In the meantime, um, the other officers also engaged the suspects um, who later died at the scene. And the officers were able to rescue the victim who was found bound, beaten, and stabbed 11 times, uh, one of which was a through and through. Um, that knife went entirely through her body and just narrowly missed her heart. It turns out that was the same knife that he stabbed me with. Wow. Um, so, you, so the victim, you say... Uh, is still alive today and survived the attack? She did. She is still alive. And um, I'll tell you that the trauma doctor attributed um, not only my survival but her survival um, to our physical conditioning. Uh, she was a competitive gymnast. And I've, I've, of course, tried to maintain a proficient level of fitness throughout my career. Um, and we can see why that you were um, awarded you know, the police cross and the Medal of Valor, and it's just every police officer's nightmare, right, to be involved in in something like that. What 
What do you think the time frame was, Julie, from the time that perhaps you made entry through the door to the time that uh, I suppose you discharged your firearm and realised you'd been stabbed by the suspect? So um, we estimated that time, Greg, uh, based on radio traffic to be less than 10 seconds. It was actually from the time that I got through the hole in the door to the time that I put out a request for an ambulance and advised I had been stabbed. And and I suppose that's the thing we've and even in our OS training here, our tactics training here, you know, everyone always talks about how um, when asked in hindsight to make recollections about time, really no one has got any idea or has any correct recollection. Even in hindsight, time just goes so quickly. So that's where your training really comes into it. Do you agree? I totally agree. And, you know, the other thing that I found, Greg, was, uh, and I learned, is that time for me slowed down. And they say that um, that happens when when you're really prepared and it actually gives you the opportunity to utilize the training that you have. And probably not unlike over here, that sounds like it started off as just a routine call that you might go to or get called to almost every shift. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, check welfare call is a call that uh, Tempe police officers answer on a daily basis multiple times. And you know, just to put things in perspective, Tempe is an agency of 350 sworn police officers. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have listened to um, some commentary on this incident where you, in a little bit more detail, went into about how from right from the very start of your day, on that particular day, things felt different. Could you perhaps just explain to the listeners how that sort of came about? Yeah, you know, I got up that day, and uh, this had never happened before, Greg. I got up, my day was running as usual. I took my dogs for a walk. I went to the gym and worked out, and I came back, and I uh, was wanting to read a chapter out of a book a friend had given me. Ironically, the name of the book was Make Today Count. <laughs> but, um Maxwell, and uh, as I was getting ready, um, I said the same mantra or a version of the same mantra that I said every day, which was, I accept and expect that I will be involved in a lethal encounter today, and I will do everything I can to ensure my survival. And uh, as I said that mantra, I can tell you, um, I just had this persistent and eerie feeling that something terrible was going to happen. And so I did some things differently. Um, one of the major things I did was I pinned my hair back, which I hadn't been doing uh, when I was going to work. So, Well, I suppose all the, the warning, well, in hindsight, I suppose the warning signs were all there. Um, what about your injuries, Julie? Just for the listeners, what, what injuries did you sustain in that incident? Yes, so I obviously sustained um, the stab wound, which was on the front of my neck, just above my left clavicle. Um, I suffered a concussion and then a serious uh, shoulder injury, uh, which required surgery. So I suppose if you're being stabbed in that sort of region, one of the the real concerns, obviously, from a life expectancy perspective is your carotid artery. That must have been close. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was sure, you know, because I was bleeding so profusely uh, by the time I got out, I knew I had to get out of, um, you know, the inner perimeter in order for fire to 
come in. And uh, on my way out, by the time I got to the intersection I was heading to uh, with another officer who stayed with me and rendered aid, um, my boots were filling up with blood. So I was pretty confident I was hit in the carotid. Um, thankfully, I wasn't. And uh, it turns out it missed my carotid artery by less than an inch. Wow. And how long did you spend in hospital? So I spent uh, three days in the hospital, and I spent uh, three weeks at home recovering from uh, complications with the stab wounds and, and my other injuries. So what do you put down to Julie from that event? What do you put down to how and why you think you survived that incident? So, you know, I would say, Greg, and I, I think you alluded to it, you know, when things go really south on us, um, we don't rise to the occasion. We fall to our level of training. And so I would say that it was my level of preparedness, um, especially, you know, physically and uh, tactically. Uh, it was about being 100% present, even though... Um, you know, I'm not a perfect person. My life wasn't going along swimmingly that day. Um, there wasn't one cell in my body that wasn't 100% focused on the task at hand. And then the third thing I would say is always having a plan. You know, I, I had played out different scenarios and worst case scenarios in my mind of what I would do in the event I was involved in such a situation. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I, I was real cognizant of, and I know you probably heard the audio is when I put out a call for help, I wanted to stay calm on the radio so that they knew what was going on and I could get the help I needed. Um, but I probably shouldn't have been so calm because uh, what happened is a, a number of people just assumed I got nicked on the hand with a knife when I said I got stabbed instead of uh, the fact that I was stabbed in the neck. So actually, uh, one of the officers didn't even leave lunch. So. <laughs> and do you remind him of that still? Um, <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> and and that, um, I suppose, that composure that you talk about do you put that down to your training, do you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and also learning from people who came before me, Greg. Um, you know, the officers who who survived critical incidents and shared those stories and um, the lessons learned from those stories in the aftermath. And I know when, um, and I think you, I've shared this with you, but um, when I was in Tempe, I actually was lucky, lucky enough to do a ride-along um, for, a, for a Sunday morning shift um, and, and can I say it was extremely different to what I'm used to over here and the statistic that uh, was portrayed to me in our briefing before our shift was in that um, in Phoenix um, more than 80% of uh, the community in Phoenix legally carry a firearm um, which is just mind-blowing for us to think of here in Australia. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not privy to that exact statistic, but um, anybody who's not a prohibited possessor can lawfully carry a, a sidearm here. And I suppose the reason for my for me bringing that up is that when you're going to these jobs, um, even if they are what you initially suspect as just another welfare check, is it's highly likely, isn't it, that someone that's involved in that you're going to visit is at least probably going to own or possess a firearm. Sure. Yep. So, so your, um, you know, your uh, fight or flight mechanisms and your anticipation is always going to be way off the scale. 
Absolutely. Now, what did um, so you've had a um, obviously some time recovering in, in hospital, Julie? But um, what did the aftermath look like for you after um, you know you'd had a chance to recover? For you, what did the aftermath look like for you, and um, what sort of struggles did you face from there? Um, so I would say, Greg, you know, I felt that my training prepared me for the incident itself, but I honestly. I just feel like I wasn't prepared for the aftermath. Um, I'll just share a few things that I went through. Um, shortly after I got out of the hospital, I remember going to the store for the first time, and I was hypervigilant, and uh, I heard something. I looked behind me, and I, I saw a man that reminded me of my attacker, and, and it startled me. You know, It was like I jumped inside. And it was the strangest thing because I looked around, and there were a lot of people. It's a very busy store, and as people milled around, you know, I thought, nobody here knows what I've been through. Um, but actually, none of us actually knows what any anyone here has been through, right? Um, I also had really bizarre thoughts racing through my head. Like, uh, I was looking at somebody and I was thinking, you know, you don't know me. I just killed someone and I could freaking kill you, <laughs> right? So, for me, that was really obviously out of the ordinary and, and bizarre. Um, my mom came to visit me from out of state to help care for me as I recovered at home. And, you know, both of my uncles were, were police officers. My brother-in-law was a police officer. Obviously, I was as well. My mom was a nurse for 40 years, so she's kind of seen and done it all. Um, well, my mom asked me if I could tell her what happened. And uh, about halfway through uh, that story, we were interrupted and... I was crushed because my mom never asked me to finish the story. Mm -hmm. um, but a friend of mine helped me to understand, you know, that my mom loves me and she wanted to help me. But she simply wasn't ready to hear what I had been through. And, and so that was a lesson for me. And uh, as time passed, I experienced conflicting and confusing emotions. You know, naturally, I felt grateful to be alive, but I also recognized that I was suffering. Um, I felt numb a lot of the times. Um, I didn't feel like eating and I couldn't sleep. I had a lot of dreams and some nightmares, and I had moments where I would just literally uh, tremble, and I had no control over it. And I found myself being concerned about how I was supposed to act because I'd never experienced anything like this before. And I felt really, I felt real guilty if um, something made me laugh or, or if I smiled. Um, so as I said, I spent, I probably said I spent three weeks at home um, recovering. And in that time, I felt a tremendous amount of anxiety about getting back to work um, because there was no communication from my agency. And I was afraid that they were going to call me at any moment and tell me they wanted me back the next day. And I knew I wasn't ready. And the lesson there for me, Greg, was that had I picked up the phone and called my commander, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have said, you know, you take as much time as you need and you come back when you're ready. Um, so I, I learned from that. And um, another thing that happened when I was at home is the detective on the case called me and he wanted to let me know that the family of the suspect dropped off a card for me and he asked me what I wanted him to do with it. Um, <laughs> this is a true story. I said, you know, uh, Vic, I'd like you to open it up and make sure there's no anthrax in there. And um, <laughs> once you do that, if you could just read it, and if you think if you think it will be 
um, bothersome to me, then then I don't want it. And so he read it. He said, I think it's good. So he sent it over. And, you know, they told me in, in the card that their hearts went out to all of us involved, that they hoped that, you know, we were healing, so on and so forth. And that card ended with, thank you for saving Brittany's life and giving us a reason to live. Now, Brittany's the victim. Yeah. The, sus- the suspect is their son, uh-huh. right? So this was such a gracious gesture from them, obviously. And I, I honestly felt like my heart would break. I, I felt so much grief over it. And I really just couldn't even begin to fathom what they had been through. Their their 26-year-old son died at the hands of the police, and they're reaching out to me. Um you know, I, I started wondering who attended his funeral, if anybody, and, and whether or not they had the support that they needed. And in the meantime, I'm there receiving hundreds of visits, phone calls, messages, cards, and gifts from family or friends and even total strangers, which um, is pretty amazing. But at the same time, that was really overwhelming, particularly because for some reason I felt compelled to send thank you cards to everybody for their support. And, and that started distracting from my healing. And it wasn't until my close friend Omar told me, you know, nobody expects that from you. Um, so I stopped doing that. Um, that, and that was really helpful. Uh, but that also made me appreciate Greg, the people who reached out and said that I didn't have to call back or respond to them, that they were just reaching out to let me know that they were thinking of me, you know? So after uh, three weeks of being on light duty, I I returned to, uh, I should say of being off, I returned to uh, light duty and I was assigned doing absolutely nothing. And while I know that was well-intentioned, it proved to be anything but helpful. Um, as I sat there, co-workers would come to see me, some to wish me well, others to get the scoop. And, you know, it was aw- it was awkward because they'd stare at my neck while they talked with me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I sat there doing nothing, it was like my brain was on fire and all I could do was ruminate about the incident. And so by the third week on light duty, I, I couldn't take it anymore. And um, I requested to go back to patrol. And I have to say, once I hit the street, I was feeling good and a lot more like my old self. Um, I was being productive and I, and I felt like I had a purpose. And to me, that was so important. I was in patrol. I was cruising along. And I know you know this, Greg, because we talked. But I was cruising along for two or three months, doing really well. um, Until one day I was in my police car. And uh, emotionally, I just hit the wall. I started crying for no apparent reason. And I literally could not stop. Um, I later learned that uncontrollable crying is common for officers dealing with trauma. But um, for me, it kind of threw me into a little bit of a tailspin. Um, So I knew I needed help at that point, and I found a new therapist who worked almost exclusively with police officers and firefighters, you know, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Uh, Robbie Adler-Tapia. Absolutely, And uh, also neighboring agencies invited me to training on mindfulness and dealing with trauma And uh, one thing I did was I attended a peer support group for officers battling the effects of stress uh, from critical incidents. Um, In in those meetings, I met officers who, quite honestly, were really angry, um, mostly at how their agencies handled their incidents. 
um, you know, they term that betrayal trauma. And research suggests that in some cases, our officers will suffer more from perceived agency betrayal than they will from um, their critical incident. Um, a number of the officers in the group were suicidal and some were homicidal. And a lot of them were using medication to help with their anxiety and or to sleep, um, while others were self-medicating with alcohol and unprescribed drugs. I confided in Dr. Robbie, um, my fears, and I let her know that I was afraid and I didn't want to end up like them. And I was especially concerned, Greg, about becoming suicidal. And a lot of that was because, you know, when we see soldiers or officers in the news um, that are suffering from post-traumatic stress, a lot of times they're suicidal. So I thought that, you know, they kind of went hand in hand. Um, thankfully, Dr. Robbie assured me that since I never experienced suicidal ideologies before, the likelihood that I would become suicidal was very slim, yeah. um, which which was refreshing for me. Um, my agency reassigned me at that point to a desk job, and I continued to experience profound sadness. Um, mm. I really didn't want to talk with many people or see anybody. Um, I would arrive early to work so that I wouldn't bump into anybody. I kept my office door closed. I kept the window shades drawn. And I spent a great deal of time wondering if I would ever feel, and I'll say it, quote unquote, normal again. Um, a couple other things that happened. One thing is, you know, my wife, uh, Karen Gregg, and um, she was a sergeant with uh, Tempe at the time. And she actually heard this incident unfold over the radio from her office. And Karen never sought help. Um, so I asked her if she would go with me to see Dr. Robbie one day. And uh, when I when we got there, Karen exploded and she literally yelled. She said, I'm just ready for us to be past this. I'm tired of talking about it and I'm tired of hearing about it nonstop. And I yep. was crushed because, you know, I wasn't past it, Greg. And I felt like talking about it was helping me. It, but I didn't realize that it was making her, her sad and that she was having difficulty repeatedly seeing and hearing what I was going through. Um, so a friend of mine who's also a therapist um, helped me to understand that mine wasn't the only trauma in this scenario, you know, that my mom, Karen, and other people who were close to me were also struggling to deal with the aftermath themselves. So I'd say everything was churning inside of me, and I, I went through some bouts of extreme anger where I wanted to throw and break things. And I went from being this happy-go-lucky, kind and compassionate person to somebody that I barely knew. And um, I felt like there were times where I was completely void of any feelings or emotions, and I literally had absolutely no interest or concern for any anybody around me. And I was experiencing these deep, dark, lonely moments. And I'll, I'll tell you, it felt like, I don't know if you've ever heard it because I don't know the name of the song, but it felt like the lyrics when they say, I'm going under, and this time I fear no one can save me, right? Right, And yep. So that pretty much sums up what the um, aftermath kind of immediately after looked like for me. And I suppose there's a couple of things that I take out of that which I think are really important, Julie, and you mentioned back just, you know, not too long ago about about Karen and it just reminded me of how important family and loved one support is. Yes. Um, I know um, from a Victoria Police perspective, I know it's something that um, 
we are wanting to work on because it's something we've done really poorly historically. Um, now, whether that's a, a cultural issue that, you know, that coppers don't want to involve their families in or not, but, you know, they're, they're on our side. They're not, they're not pulling against us, but we've got to realise that, you know, we come home from work after having a bad day at work, not, not even thinking about how bad your day was back in 2015, but they also get exposed to it, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad that you're looking at, you know, how you could deal with that. I, I mean, it's hard for somebody, you know, I was fortunate with Karen um, that she was a supervisor, plus she had been a detective, so she could help me understand the process that I was going to go through and everything. And um, so that was helpful. But a lot of families that want to be there to support you know, they don't know what they don't know. And unless we communicate, and, I, and I'll, I'll step back not only with our family, but with our agency, a lot of times someone will reach out to say, you know, they're going through whatever and their agency hasn't done X, Y, and Z. And typically my first question is, you know, have you asked them? And more often than not is the answer is no. Yeah. And I got to a point, Greg, where I realized we can't fault our agencies um, for not doing something because a lot of times we don't even know what we need to heal. They surely don't know what we need. But if we ask them and they don't do what we ask or can't accommodate us and be flexible, then that's a different story. What I found with Tempe is there were a lot of things that they could have done better. However, with the exception of one thing, Tempe was very flexible in their approach and that um, whatever I asked for, they really tried to accommodate me. That's, well, and that's, as you said, that organisational betrayal can, you know, it just uh, adds on to all the other traumas that you're dealing with. So, you know, it sounds like the Tempe, um, with all circumstances taken into account, that they were, they were pretty supportive of you. Yeah, I think they tried real hard, and I, I can tell you, I think they've made a lot of progress um, since this incident. The other thing that I really got out of uh, what you were talking about before, um, Julie, was in the importance of people um, reaching out and for yes. support. Now, wh whether it be just a phone call, a text message, uh, whether it be they come and see you or whatever it is, but um, how important did you find that in your recovery that you knew you had the support from your colleagues and your family, etc.? Yeah, that was extremely uh, important for me. You know, my communication, excuse me, my connection to others um, and open communication was really beneficial. But I, I also, I'll say, Greg, you know, I was blessed um, with the phenomenal care and support that I had. However, it wasn't helpful until I really became open to receiving it. And, you know, I think that's real important. Um, because you're sitting there, and I'll, I'll give you this analogy, and I think you and I talked about this in the past. Um, I went to the West Coast trauma retreat, uh, post-trauma retreat in California, yep. and one of the analogies they use, they say every one of us has a backpack, right? Every cop has a backpack, and every time you deal with a critical incident or a significant trauma, it's like putting a rock in that backpack. And so we have... Um, an option. Either, either we need to deal with what we have in that backpack or, or we have to expand our capacity for what's in there because otherwise it's eventually going to weigh us down, right? So what happens is sometimes we're so overwhelmed and our backpack's so full, we don't have the capacity to receive 
the support that's there. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that we really need to be cognizant of. And, you know, quite frankly, as difficult as it is, um, sometimes we have to be able to sit with the pain, um, which isn't easy. Uh, and, you know, take that time to regroup and um, heal. And you've, um, uh, the, for the listeners, they can be excited about, so you mentioned Dr. Robbie Adler Tapia earlier. So Dr. Robbie's already agreed to have a chat to me for one of these upcoming podcasts. Oh, awesome. And, yeah. And you, and you just mentioned they won't the West. Be disappointed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I she's, a, she's a great lady. And um, and in a further um, podcast, you just mentioned a West Coast post trauma retreat. So Nick Turkovich um, from, yep. the, from the retreat is going to chat to us too because I was lucky enough, oh, as you probably know, to, to spend some time at their retreat during my fellowship as well. So oh, great. Some exciting people to talk to. Now, um, I suppose getting towards the end, um, Julie, what do you see now? Uh, so, you know, you've explained to the listeners all the all the emotions and the feelings and the health issues you dealt with afterwards, which, as you're reeling them off, they're sort of ticking every box that I can think of in relation to, you know, what, as police officers from the trauma we were exposed to. But what do you see as really important as to how you maintain some good mental health now what what do you see as a really important things to keep you moving forward and being positive with your mental health well you know one thing i can say greg is that there is no one size fits all in getting through these incidents um but that the key for me was finding what worked for me and then actually doing it um immediately after my event i can tell you the way Despite doing cardio workouts, I found that that was the only way that I could get rid of this really sick energy that I had in my body. And um, working out also gave me an escape um, where I could listen to music and clear my mind, or I could take the time to be alone with my thoughts and my feelings, which, as I said before, it's not easy to sit with that type of pain, but um, sometimes I think it's necessary. Obviously, eating right um, was big. And somebody said to me, and it's funny because I, I, I'm a very good sleeper, but somebody said, you know, you need to find a way to sleep because after this, as I mentioned, I was having um, serious difficulty sleeping. So um, my friend Jeff Barnett, who works for a neighboring agency, Jeff's been involved in multiple shootings, and he's, he's been through more than almost anyone I know. Um, Jeff introduced me to... Um, a warrior, they call it a warrior meditation um, from one of the trauma retreats he had gone through. It's called that is called Save a Warrior uh, that retreat. But anyway, Jeff taught me that meditation, and I, I started meditating, um, which helped me to sleep. And I've continued that meditation um, since then. Uh-huh. And um, I would say, you know, just having the support. Um, as my friend Michael said, you know, you have to find people who are not only willing, but who are capable of hearing what you're going to share with them and supporting you through it. So I've done a, a good job of um, having, and I've been fortunate to have a good support system around me. As I mentioned, finding uh, the right therapist for me um, 
was extremely important and helped me out tremendously. Um, I, I honestly, I was going two and three times a week um, when I was really struggling. And uh, I haven't actually been back to see Dr. Robbie, though our paths cross um, in our involvement with other endeavors, um, thankfully. Uh, but I haven't gone to her as, you know, um, a patient. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I just... I did some research, Greg, um, and I don't know that I ever shared this with you, but it was on happiness. And you can actually, in the United States, you can get a degree in happiness. I don't know if you know this, but (laughs) (laughs) the things that, the three three things that they cite most frequently and what um, makes people happy are gratitude, um, giving back, and our connection to others. So... You know, I really spent time, I retired in 2016, and I've spent a lot of time focusing on on those things. Um, Karen and I got married in 2017. Um, One of the things that came of this incident was that um, a year prior to my incident, I was at a conference and I'd written a review, and uh, they asked what they could do in the future. I think, and I said, I think you should do X, Y, and Z. I could help you with X and Y. And so, while they were in their planning committee meeting, they nobody knew who I was because this was in California. And so they Googled me, and my incident came up. Well, they sub- they subsequently invited me to speak at this conference with a thousand participants. And um, from there, that kind of snowballed into me speaking at conferences all over the country. And I also went as far as Spain. Uh, But for me, it really helped, uh, Greg, to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it it helped for me to feel like something good was coming out of a really crappy situation. And also, it was affording me the opportunity to pay it forward you know, by helping and supporting other officers um, who have dealt with significant grief and trauma the way that others helped me. And I know, you know, you hear plenty of stories around grief and trauma, how it just debilitates people. And I go back to what you just said at the start of your answer to my last question about how cardio work. And I know how much of a, a fitness beast and lover you are and to think that, <laughs> that 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 this was almost getting you to a stage where you weren't feeling like actually doing something that became so natural so just how debilitating it can be can't it if it yeah. gets on top of you there's some really great messages there and i i know through some of some of the things that i've learned over the past couple of years of how important your um gut health through diet and physical fitness is to ensure yeah. that our mental health stays the best it can be so it's a really good message too Right. Now, I just want to just finally finish off with a question for you around your business, Artema Self-Defence. Um, I uh, obviously follow you on socials and you're always posting photos of helping out other departments and all that. Can you just quickly tell us a little bit about that venture that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So, um, actually, Artemis, um, my business started, um, it was going to be just, I was planning. I started four years before I retired. I was planning to just teach women self-defense. Um, it took quite the turn um, after my incident and um, it's transitioned and now I'm uh, almost exclusively teaching law enforcement, um, not only presenting on my incident, but I also developed a program. You know, here in the States, the hot topic is de-escalation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg, we, we know that de-escalation requires cooperation. So a lot of times when we get to that point, it's gone too far. So 
I developed a program that focuses on tactical and communication strategies aimed at preventing police encounters from escalating in the first place. Um, we use team tactics and um, officer safety, basically with the goal of um, reducing the likelihood of injury to everyone involved, not just the officers, but also the people that we deal with and trying to achieve the most humane and responsible outcomes possible. But in addition to that, Greg, you know, it's my hope that we can help officers to manage their safety to the point that hopefully they can potentially avoid being involved in a critical incident in the aftermath. You know, that, that in a perfect world would be amazing. And it keeps you busy, doesn't it? it? It keeps me very busy. And, you know, I'm honest to God, I'm living my passion. And I, I don't think I could be happier. You know, as a result of this crisis, I've experienced enormous growth. I, I think maybe even far greater than I could have achieved without such a life-threatening and life-changing event. Yeah. Look, I really, as I said at the start, Julie, I really appreciate you putting the the time aside to, to chat with us. I really, really value our our friendship and the short time we've known each other. And I think, you know, each of us generally finishes off some sort of conversation around with, oh, when are you coming over to see us? And I, <laughs> you got to yeah. come out here to Australia. I'd love to introduce you to some of our folk out here in Australia. Um, oh, I'd love to come out. You know, uh, as soon as COVID's under control, you know, that was the plan to do a lot more traveling and that came to a screeching halt uh, with COVID. But, you know, I have to say, Greg, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to spend this time with you and your listeners. And, and one thing I want to throw out, if there's ever anything that I can do, that they should feel free to reach out anytime. I know that, or I hope that you'll share my contact with them. I will, and thanks for the lead in. That's a perfect intro, Julie. I was just going to, I asked you the other day if you'd be happy sharing some of your contacts in case, obviously, you know, we've only got a short amount of time and there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but... Um, are you happy if I um, announce your email address here so that if anyone wants to reach out to ask any questions to you, is that okay? I'd be happy if they did. So um, so your email contact is julie at julie Werniak, and I'll spell that. It's J-U-L-I-E-W-E-R-H-N-Y-A-K dot com. Did I get the spelling right? You got it right, Greg. And the, your website, which, as I said, I've um, had a, a look at, and there is some material on there where there's some uh, interviews with you, with the local TV stations and some, some other podcasts about your incident, if people wanted to, to have a listen to those. And your website address is Julie Werniak, obviously the same spelling, dot .com. Um, you got it. As, again, as I said before, Julie, thank you so much. Um, we'll... Be in contact, no doubt, and I will get you out, you and Karen out to Australia um, at some stage, I promise you, and I promise you I'll be back to see you. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your experiences. I've got no doubt that there'll be listeners tuning in that even if they just get one little teeny weeny bit of information out of what you've had to say, um, that they're going to be a better person for it. So thanks, Julie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. That's all right. All right, thanks, listeners, until our next podcast. Thanks for listening in.